All right, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. This is a text that when you first read it, you're not quite sure what's going on, or you might not be quite sure what's going on, and it might take some extra thought and digging in a little bit to really unpack it. And I'm, I'm trusting that this is going to be an impactful time in God's Word. It's going to make us evaluate what our relationship with God is really like. Uh, So you can ask yourself this as we begin to prepare our hearts and minds to look at what God has to say to us. You got to ask yourself, what is your relationship with God like? What's it like? Do you have a relationship? And I want you to think about that word relationship with God. Do you know him? Do you love him? Are you near to him? you trust him? Is there a joy and delight in that relationship? You see, all throughout Scripture, we are encountering this, this God who, though he is blazingly holy and just and righteous, he desires a relationship with his people. From, from Genesis to Revelation, we're exploring in the text of Scripture this amazing and profound reality that God actually loves the people that he made. And he has a particular love for his people. And he wants to enjoy a relationship with them. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are created, and they are uh, married. It's the first marriage. God brings them together in this united uh, marriage where they are to love one another. Uh, Why did God do that? We actually find out much later in the Bible, you go to Ephesians chapter 5, and you start to see that that marriage was created with this purpose and design in it that was meant to communicate something about how God loves his people. That the marriage is meant to be this picture of Christ's love for the church. That the, the marriage is like a living parable, an embodied picture that's supposed to show us God's love for his people. That the relationship God intends to have with his people is one of love, intimacy, closeness. You get to the very end of the Bible, you go to Revelation 19, and the picture is this marriage supper of the Lamb, it's described as, where God has gathered in all his people and they're feasting. There's this celebration of love and joy over God's saving of his people, and now they're finally all home. It's love, celebration, affection, joy, delight. I mean, those are the words that are meant to describe God's relationship with his people. Is that how you would describe your relationship with God? Now, the text that we're going to look at is going to reveal to us that we have certain tendencies, that because of our sin, we we don't naturally drift into this vibrant, free love for God. We don't drift that way. In fact, we're going to see that we actually drift in opposite direction. And and so let me read the whole text you're going to read it, and you're going to go, hmm, what, what, is, what is he talking about here? And then we're going to go through and unpack it. And as we do, we're going to encounter this picture that Jesus paints of how humanity is meant to relate to God. And it's beautiful, and I hope it will encourage you. So let's read, starting in verse 18, 
Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18, we're going to read through verse 22. Now John's disciples, those are John the Baptist's disciples, and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. What in the world is Jesus talking about? He's got patches and sewing and wine and wineskins, all in response to this question that the people have about fasting. Well, we're going to unpack some very critical pieces of information about who we are and about what God wants and about how we are to live in relationship with God just from these uh, this conversation that Jesus is having with these people. Now, here's the first thing we see in the text, and we see it in the question that these people bring to Jesus. The first thing that we see here is that there is a tendency in humanity toward external, heartless religion. There's, an ex- there's, a, there's a tendency or a drift toward external outward forms of religion while there's cold-heartedness and distantness in the hearts of people. See what's happening in verse 18. John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, and the Pharisees, they're fasting. They're fasting. They're committing to this duty, this discipline, of fasting where they would not eat for portions of their day or portions of their week. And it was seen as a very holy thing for them to do. And people come and they say, Jesus, well, why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you fasting? We see this propensity to drift toward externalism, toward formalism in really two ways. First, we see it in the exercise of their fasting. Uh, Now, first, we need to make it clear that fasting is not wrong. It was not wrong for John's disciples to fast, and the actual act of fasting is not wrong. It is not inherently sinful. God appointed a fast in the Old Testament for his people on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Uh, The Day of Atonement, Jews were called to fast as they thought about their own sin before a holy God, and they thought about the atonement that needed to be made for their sins, they were called to reflect, and that reflection was accompanied with a fast. They didn't eat, so they could think more clearly and more focused on what God intended for them to think about. Fasting isn't bad if God institutes it. Jesus himself fasted in the wilderness for 40 days. In this very book, in the very life of Christ, we know that Jesus himself committed to fasting in the early stage of his ministry. You read through the, God, the, the, the book of Acts, for instance, and you see that fasting regularly happened with the church leaders before they sent out 
Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey, they prayed and fasted for them. And then a few chapters later, as they were appointing elders in all the church they plant, churches they planted, they prayed and fasted before they committed new elders to these churches. Fasting isn't a bad thing. Fasting isn't a problematic thing. Fasting in and of itself can be a very good thing. In fact, Jesus in these very verses says that God's people will fast someday in the future when Jesus is taken away from them. So fasting in and of itself is not bad. However, what we see here and what we know about the Pharisees is that fasting had become something twisted, corrupt. It had become something detached from its original meaning and intention. In other words, the outward form of religiosity was preserved while the heart for fasting had been lost. What the Pharisees thought was that by fasting regularly, they would make themselves more acceptable to God, more impressive to God, more impressive to people. The people around them would see how often the Pharisees fasted and they would be impressed. And even God would see how much they fasted. And God himself would be obligated to treat them kindly because of how devoted they were. That's how they thought. You see, what was happening with the Pharisees was that they were resisting God's call to repentance. God was calling all people. That's what Jesus had said in chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, that all people were to repent. That means confess your sin. That means admit you're wrong. That means change your mind. That means recognize you have no righteousness and come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins so you can be reconciled to God. Well, these Pharisees did not feel that they needed to fast. No, no, no. They felt rather than confessing their sin, admitting their moral bankruptcy and turning to God and seeking cleansing, they just put on some external appearances of righteousness. They fasted. They felt that that was enough. You probably remember from last week, what we talked about was some of the ways we shortchange God's work of sanctification in our hearts and how if we shortchange how the Spirit's working, we can actually just grow not in holiness, but in holier-than-thouness. We can grow not in actual righteousness and conformity to Christ, but we can actually be growing in self-righteousness. And the problem with that is we can be very proud of it, and people will even applaud us along the way. It happens really in four stages. We looked at first, it's, it's this inability to see your own sin. That's what the Pharisees were doing. I don't, I don't need to repent. I don't need uh, to confess my sin and turn to God. I'm pretty good at my own. And so there's this resistance to admit who you really are. There's this resistance to look in the mirror. And then that goes into the kind of a second phase. Well, you, you, you still want to feel good about yourself, right? So you still want to feel good about yourself. And because you still want to feel good about yourself, you go into this next stage where now you start embracing external forms of righteousness. You fast a little more diligently. You give a little more generously. You try to put external works that actually make your conscience feel a little more at ease. And that leads to your fourth stage is where you feel pretty good about yourself. 
You didn't actually deal with the sin in your heart. You didn't actually confess it to God. You didn't actually bring it before the Spirit. You didn't actually repent and humble yourself and confess your sin. You just started building your own house of righteousness, and then you stand back and you look at the creation that you've constructed, and you go, okay, I'm pretty good. I'm doing okay. Well, that's exactly what these Pharisees had done. They didn't repent, so they didn't look inwardly. Instead, they sought to fix the solution by plastering outward appearances. This was their fasting. And this is what led them to fast, and then not only that, to expect others to fast as well. It says there at the second half of verse 18 that people came to Jesus and said to him, why don't you guys fast? (laughs) Why don't you? And here's kind of the second way we see a propensity to drift toward external religion. We're all drifting if we're not going toward Christ and his free gospel. We're actually going to be drifting towards self-righteousness. And we see this in the expectations of the people. Do you see it there? They expect Jesus and the disciples of Jesus to fast. Why? Why do they expect that? Here's what's going on. This is what happens. They go, wow, these guys are fasting. Wow, that's impressive. That's, that, that, that's holy right there. Like what they're doing, that's the real deal. They're, they're really self-sacrificing. They're really committed. They must be all in. Look, they don't eat a couple days a week. Why don't you do that, Jesus? Clearly, that's the more uh, righteous way to live. Clearly, that's an expression of holiness. That looks more impressive. Therefore, it must be righteous, holy. It must be what God wants of his people, right? Jesus doesn't even give in to their pressure. But I just want to stop and point out this, that there is an expectation uh, that, that righteousness looks like often external forms. Often we are really impressed with external forms. Man, we love things that are externally impressive, don't we? We can get really caught up and infatuated with the externals. Someone is so committed to fasting, and we go, wow, look at how holy they are. They're they're committed to external appearances that make them look really Christian. Oh, man, they're so spiritual. Listen to the, the spiritual language they always use, and we can get really caught up in the looking on the outside, looking at the surface, and then equating the surface with the reality. That's what's happening here. These people are like, wow, these people are fasting? Jesus, what about you? Why aren't you fasting? That looks more holy. Are you more infatuated with the external than what's actually real? We're we're prone to this. We're prone to think this in our own lives. We're prone to think this about others. In fact, every time we choose something, For the external rather than the substance, we're showing that we share the same impulse as the people here. You ever felt like maybe it would be much better to go to a church that has bigger productions, that has a style of music that's more like what you like, that's louder perhaps and more flashy Maybe you want to have a preacher that's super funny that it will cause you to just be rolling with laughter throughout the whole time. And maybe they have these events that are just thrilling that you want to be a part of. Maybe you would rather be a church that maybe 
claps more or shouts out more or is more outwardly involved. And sometimes people can get caught up in the forms that they would rather choose those things than the things that point to the substance of the matter, the preaching of the word, the witness of the lives of the people. Some people choose their church based on the form because they're impressed by the form. And they go, well, the substance really isn't there. But man, what they do is impressive. We have an impulse sometimes to think that the form is what matters most. And that's what's happening in the hearts of these people. Jesus, where's your fasting? I want to see something more impressive, Jesus. See, we tend to think that the outward and external presented thing is the real thing, and Jesus understands that's not the real thing. In fact, by the way, this is one of the reasons why we as a church try to avoid flashiness. (laughs) We actually try to be kind of ordinary on purpose. You might say, well, Eric, you're just an ordinary guy. Well, that's true too. But we actually try to, on purpose, kind of do things pretty simply. You know why? There's actually a reason why. is because we believe that if we really attempt to create a flash and a buzz and bright lights and something that is appealing to the, uh, the, the, the desires and the cravings that people have to be impressed, we might tempt them. We might tempt those people to believe that the power that this church has is founded upon its ability to be flashy. That's a lie. If there is any power that we have as a church, it is the power of Jesus Christ in the gospel. That is what's powerful. That's what changes lives. And if we obscure that with some sort of flashbang production, we're going to cause people to go, well, maybe it's Jesus, but maybe it's the fact that they got this awesome production on stage every Sunday. We like being simple because at the end of the day, people will, if the Lord does anything here, they won't be able to point any flash. They'll be able to say, Jesus must be active. But I just want to point out that in this text, these people are kind of infatuated with the externals. The Pharisees are fasting because they think the external impresses God. The people are wondering about why Jesus' disciples don't fast. Why? Because they think that that's what true spirituality is. It's based on externals. It's based on what you do. It's based on your rituals. It's based on the performance that you offer God and offer people. We have this tendency to think, just like the people here, if it's bigger and better and external and obvious and impressive, it therefore must be legitimate. That's not necessarily the case. I'm not railing, by the way, on, on big churches, but rather any church, could even be us, that tries to woo the world by creating external forms seeking to impress people to bring them in with anything other than Christ. So let's go to our, our second point that we kind of see here in the text. What we're going to see here in, is that God's desire for us is a joyful relationship with him. God's desire for his people is 
a joy-filled, delightful relationship with him. And look at verse 19. So Jesus doesn't give in to their, their pressure to fast. Jesus doesn't go, oh, yeah, you know, I should have told my disciples to fast. That would have been more holy of them. But those guys, man, they're just not that good of people. He doesn't go down. He doesn't give in to their pressure to conform to their super spiritual expectations. Rather, instead, Jesus responds with a question to them. Jesus says to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. Now, Jesus answers their question, why aren't you fasting, with his own question. What do you think? Is it right for wedding guests to be fasting at a wedding? I don't know about uh, your wedding, if you've been married, I guess there was probably no one there dressed all in black with a dour face with ash on their forehead, fasting, refusing to take part of any of the celebration, not if they liked you at least. If you had any of that at your wedding, I don't know what was going on there because that's not normal. It's not appropriate. A wedding is a celebration. At weddings, people stand up and they talk about the, the glories of the day. People celebrate the moment feasts are spread before all the guests, it's a time of joy, a time of celebration. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. He's comparing himself to the bridegroom. I hope you see that. He's the bridegroom, and the celebration is in order. Can they fast at a wedding? Can they be all dour and austere when the moment is a moment of joy and a celebration? You see, in Mark chapter 1, you could see why this was such a big deal. Jesus is coming. He's preaching of a coming kingdom. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's speaking with authority. He's doing all kinds of amazing things. And then he's welcoming sinners. That's the previous section we looked at. This is amazing. And here, Jesus is asking, is it okay when I, the bridegroom, and this, the wedding, is it okay for my followers to be Grieving? Fasting? Moping? No! That would be totally inappropriate for the moment. This moment of my presence, Jesus is saying, is a time for downright happiness, downright celebration. Verse 20 is a little bit of a darker note where he goes, the days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them, and they'll fast in that day. And there's a little bit of a discussion on taken away. Does that mean when Jesus dies on the cross, uh, or does that mean when he ascends into heaven? Uh, it's, it's hard to tell either way. I think um, either way, the idea is at some point in the future, Jesus will not be physically present with the disciples, and that will be an adequate, reasonable time to fast, but not when Jesus is with them. Fasting is appropriate maybe later on when the that their treasure and their delight and their celebration is, is gone, but not now, not now. The fasting, again, isn't a bad thing. Jesus says, my followers will fast sometime in the future. But even that fasting was meant to be private. Remember Matthew 6, if you're going to fast, you're fasting between you and God. You, you clean your face, you, you stand upright, 
You don't go around making sure everyone knows you're fasting. It's meant to be something that you do between God and, and you to, to worship him, to sharpen your focus, to think about your own sin and to reflect on the sacrifice of Christ. All that is appropriate in its place after Jesus is gone. But in the presence of Christ, there is no fasting. At the, at the wedding, there are no dirges that we sing. This is a celebration time. I want you to see that Jesus in this uh, answer and what he's saying here really gets to the heart of Christianity. Jesus is introducing something so foreign to what the Pharisees thought. He's introducing a relationship with God that's not based on rule keeping, a relationship with God that's not based on rituals in external forms. It's not based on how much you fast. It's not based on how much you tithe. It's not based on what you wear. It's not based on those external forms. The outward external forms are not the real thing, Jesus is saying. Listen, he's saying that what is the heart of what it means to be right with God is your relationship with me. You see that in the text? He's saying, I'm the bridegroom. You disciples, you're my wedding guests. You celebrate because you know me. Your joy is in me. I'm the treasure. I'm the reason to celebrate. I'm here. And if I'm here, you have all kinds of reasons for rejoicing. You see, we have this tendency to flip everything upside down. We make religion, we make what God, we, we think that God expects for us to be rule followers. We got to fast. We got to do this. We got to do that. We got to do this rule and that ritual and that routine. And if I do those things, then I will have a good relationship with God. And Jesus flips it all upside down. He says, no, 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 no. It's about me. It's about loving me. It's about a relationship with me. I am the reason that you have to celebrate. I am the reason that you have for joy. Why? Because in knowing me, you are forgiven. Remember, he's the doctor who heals the sick. He's the son of man that has authority to forgive sins. Anyone who comes to Jesus has their sins forgiven, has their hearts healed, and is reconciled to God. It's not about doing all these external forms. It's about knowing Christ and having a relationship with him. This is true Christianity. If you thought that Christianity was going to church, you missed it. If you thought that Christianity was adopting a certain moral code, you missed it. If you thought that Christianity meant putting yourself into some sort of moral straitjacket, where now you have to conform to everyone's expectations and everyone's moral standards, and you gotta live because that's the way that you make yourself pleasing to God, you missed it. That's not Christianity, but so much of the world thinks that's what Christianity is. They gotta fast enough. They gotta be disciplined enough. They gotta do their Christian moral duty, and if they do it enough, God will receive them. I remember talking to a, a woman who had thought all her life that that's what God wanted. And man, she was, she was good. She was a really nice lady. And she grew up in a system where she thought that if she went to church and if she gave enough and if she was kind enough to her neighbor and if she did all the right things, then she would have a place in heaven one day. And when she heard the gospel, the way she put it, it was like a burden fell off her back. It was like, really? It's that easy? 
I, I, I embrace Christ and I'm forgiven and accepted by God. I come in my sickness and he heals me. And the answer is yes. It's about Jesus. It's about relationship with him. It's not about conforming to outward standards in external forms. And if you do that, you're going to destroy yourself. It's about coming to Jesus Christ because he is all you need. It's so freeing. It's not about the external forms of church attendance or of moral improvement. It is in your repentance, turning away from any hope you ever have of being good enough, and then receiving the generous love of the Savior. And then when you have the Savior, you're free. You're free from trying to impress God with those unattainable and impossible standards. You're free from working to impress mankind and impress your family and impress other people around you. You're free from that because you're in Christ. You're forgiven. You're already declared to be justified, to be righteous. See, true, living, vital Christianity is not about following rules. It's about a love relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And when you come to Jesus, you are reconciled to God. You are forgiven of your sins. You are brought into a relationship where God is your Father. He receives you. It's a glorious relationship. It's a relationship of love, not a relationship where God stands in heaven, arms crossed, expecting you to earn some sort of favor from him. It's knowing Christ. Jesus himself said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, Jesus, he befriends sinners. And then he goes to the cross to pay for the sins of sinners. And then he rises from the dead to conquer their sin. And then he says, whoever comes. So you come in your sin and you come in your inability and you come to him. You say, Jesus, you're all I've got. You're my only hope. That's what reconciles you to God. And like Jesus is saying here, that gives you reason to rejoice because you have the bridegroom. And you don't have to go around fasting, trying to conform to external standards. You can't. You take Christ. He transforms you. And then the love that you have propels you forward to actually live in obedience. But that obedience isn't driven by a fear that maybe God won't accept me if I fail. It's an obedience that says God has already accepted me a failure. And though I am a failure, he has loved me. And his love will be with me and never will forsake me no matter how far I go. He will always receive me back. What a Savior. What a Savior. And that leads us to Jesus' third statement here, or third kind of teaching. He says in verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the old from the new, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Here's here's our third observation from this text, is that external religion and joyful relationship are incompatible. You, You can't 
combine them. That's what Jesus is getting at with these statements, these illustrations. The, 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 the unshrunk cloth and the old garment, you try to connect them and it just makes a hole bigger. You take this new wine and you pour it into an old wineskin. That old wineskin has already expanded as much as it can expand and the new wine is kind of still fermenting. What's going to happen? It's going to burst those wineskins. You, you lose the wine and you break the skins. It ruins everything. And here's what's going on. Here's what he's trying to show you. He's that, that dull external form religion that's all on the outside is incompatible with genuine loving relationship. You can't have both. And so if you as a Christian are trying to, you, you, you believe in the grace of God, you, you believe that it's a relationship of love, and yet somewhere in your mind, maybe even unarticulated, maybe it's more of an impulse than it is a thought, you still think that God loves you more on your good days and less on your bad days. You still think that there's like 1% you got to do to prove yourself to him. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The old self-righteous stuff doesn't even work. You can't even combine it with what I'm talking about. I'm talking about freedom. I'm talking about grace. I'm talking about love. That's incompatible with rules and rituals and forms. Let me just give you an illustration. I'm stealing this from John Piper, but it's perfect for what we're talking about. I'll personalize it. Imagine... On a Friday night, I dress up really nice, and to surprise Ashley, I, I go to the front door of our house. I ring the doorbell. She answers the door, and she's surprised to see me. She's wondering why I'm all dressed up, and from behind my back, I pull out a dozen of red roses. I say, here, I got this for you. She goes, wow, Eric, how could you? Wow, w why? What's the occasion? And imagine in that moment, I say, Ashley, it is my duty. It is my duty to buy these for you. Suddenly the romance is gone. Because it wasn't love that made me do that. It was the fact that I felt like some obligation was set upon me to do that. It's not love. And let's take this a little further. Imagine Ashley looks at the situation and goes, okay takes the roses and puts them in a vase somewhere, and then goes, okay, we can be married for another week. Make sure you do this next Friday night. Now, on the outside, someone observing, a neighbor across the street sees how every Friday night I bring these roses, and every Friday night she takes them and puts them in a vase, and from the outside they go, Wow, what a marriage. If only I could have a marriage like that. Wow, how, how perfect, how romantic. Uh, if my husband got me flowers every Friday, I'd be a happier woman, she says. Now, you see what's going on, though. From the outside, it might look very impressive, but what's actually happening involves no love, involves no romance. It's all transaction. That's all it is. It's the roses by another week of marriage. That's all that's happening. You see that, that true, genuine relationship cannot be mixed with rules and rituals and outward forms. You try to mix those, and it's not love anymore. It's not free anymore. It's actually slavery. 
Uh, no one wants to be in a marriage like that where both parties are under obligation to be together. And so there's these transactions going back and forth. There are some marriages like that. There are some relationships like that. And certainly, friends, there are some Christians who think that God is that way, that he's waiting for you to bring him flowers for this week so he'll continue to be your savior. Or he's, con he's waiting for you to do something more impressive so he continue to bless you. As if God can be bought, as if we can put God in our debt by doing good things. That is not the relationship God intends for his people. It's not love. It's not a wedding feast. It's not a joy. It's burdensome. It's slavery. It's cold-hearted, and it's dead. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 helps us see how urgent what's being taught here is. Look at verses 1 and 2. We're just going to look at these real quick. Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Think about that pause. For freedom. What Jesus has done for us is for our freedom. He set us free so that we would feel free. Not that this theory of freedom would exist externally in some sort of abstraction, but that we would actually feel a sense of freedom. He set us free for freedom. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Well, what's the yoke of slavery? It's this. It's believing that I somehow have to continually being good enough, having these forms of righteousness so that God will love me still, so that God will bless me still. Don't submit to that because why? It's slavery. Your relationship is not based on what you do for God. It cannot be because you'll never do enough. You cannot do enough. He set you free for freedom. In other words, you have no right to walk around in the shackles of shame if you're with Christ. That's not what he's called you to do. You have no right to think that you being miserable makes you a better person. You're free. Sins are forgiven in Christ, already done. Adoption has already taken place. You're his child. You're free. You're not bound to be on the treadmill of performance, always trying to do enough to earn God's and the people's favor. Be free. Be actually free because Jesus loves you. And then look at verse 2. He says, look, this is how serious Paul gets. This is not some peripheral matter. Look how serious he gets, verse 2. He says, look. Look. Okay, guys, look. <laughs> I, Paul... I say to you that if you accept circumcision, and that was the issue of the day. In Jesus, with Jesus, it was fasting. It was these external appearances. With Paul, it was this circumcision thing that, that people believed that they could come to Christ by faith and be saved by the grace of God, but then afterwards they had to conform to the Moses, the law of Moses, okay? They had to, have their, they had to be circumcised. They had to conform to the, the law of Israel, and they thought that that was grace. It was grace, but then there was some works that they needed to do, okay? Paul looks them in the eye, and he says, listen, this is how big a deal this is. 
if you accept circumcision, if you accept any additional good work to this gospel, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Let that sink in. You add to the gospel, there's no advantage that you have in Christ. Christ isn't an advantage to you if you're trying to add, add, add to him. This is a point that you need to write down and remember and live by that, that, that freedom in the gospel is destroyed, it's chipped away by addition, not subtraction. See that? It is dangerous to add to the gospel, and yet we often forget that. We talk about don't miss parts of the gospel, don't leave out parts of the gospel, and we're right. Subtraction's dangerous too, but we're much more subtle and much more pervasive in churches is this. We add something to it. We add something to it. When we do, what are we doing? We're going back to the yoke of slavery. You might be thinking, well, what's, what's the big deal if I add something to my life? Okay, what, what if I want to be holy? Would it really hurt just to add another rule to my life? <laughs> Would it really hurt to, to add some, some rule to my life that, that will help me you know, pursue holiness a little more? It'll, it'll push me? Listen. It will not, hear me, it will not help you to add a rule or many rules to your life. It will not help you. You will put yourself under a yoke of slavery and you will try your best to follow those rules and you will either succeed and be puffed up because you are attaining your self-invented righteousness or you will be chronically anxious because you'll never keep your rules good enough. Adding rules to your life sounds good because it feels like you're becoming more holy. And listen, it is a trick. It is a deception. It is a lie. You cannot add rules to your life and think that's making you more holy. That will steal your freedom. It'll steal your freedom. Let me just show you in real time how this works. You, you, you are convicted by a sermon. You're convicted, let's say, by your own Bible study. And you go, man, I really need to grow. I want to become more holy. I'm going to wake up every morning at 5.30 a.m. this week, Monday to Friday, early morning, time in the Word. Let's say that Monday rolls around, and you're up at 5.30. You're in the Word, and you feel pretty good about it. I did it. Okay, day one, check that off. Day two, it's a little bit of a struggle. It's Tuesday morning, but you, your alarm sounds, and you get out of bed, and you got two days under your belt, waking up at 5.30, reading the Bible. Wednesday, you snooze it once because you're a little tired. But you get up anyway, and you didn't have as much time in the Word, but you had some time in the Word, and little nagging voice in your head says, man, you should have gotten up at 5.30. You go, yeah, no, okay, I'll try harder. Well, next morning, you're still really tired, and maybe you're really struggling, but you try it again, but this time you just snooze it, and you don't wake up till 7.30. You sleep in, and you totally forget, and suddenly the day's begun, and you're not even reading your Bible that day. What's happening? Let me, let's ask what's happening in this situation. To wake up at 5.30 is nowhere in Scripture. That's not a 
That's not a biblical command. Yeah, read your Bible, meditate on the Word day and night. All those things are biblical, but the form itself is not a biblical standard. You've created that form, and now you're holding yourself accountable to keep that form. And what happens there? You feel good when you attain it. You'll feel bad when you don't. And your conscience is now being shaped not by God's word, but by your standard. And so what's going to happen is either you're going to feel very good about accomplishing your own invented self-righteous behavior, or you're going to feel very bad about not being able to meet your own standard that you've created, and you're going to live either in pride or in despair. That's what's going to happen. And your rule that you thought would help you actually has only made you more anxious. Freedom is gone. Freedom is gone. I mean, it could go the other way. You could say, yeah, I'm going to wake up at 5.30, and then you begin to wake up at 5.30, and every morning you're up at 5.30, and you attain this new habit. What's happening there? Then suddenly you think that's the reason that you're, you're growing in righteousness. It's the form. It's because I'm doing this. That's why I'm becoming a better person. It's because of this particular form that I've adopted. It's not the form. It's Christ. If there's any growth in any of us at any point in all our lives, it's Christ. That's it. It's never the form. But we sometimes get so obsessed with the form. And when we're obsessed with the form, we start looking around at other people and start saying, well, why don't they wake up at 530? It worked for me. No, it's not the form. It's Christ. It's being with him. That's, that's the only thing. And yet, just like the people who looked at the impressive fasting, they go, wow, they're fasting. And they think that maybe other people should fast. That's always what happens. We begin to think that our way is the best way. Our way is the only way. In self-righteousness, we impose our expectations on other people. And when they fail to live up to our standards, we judge them. Listen, that will be the death of our church. When everyone is drifting, if we all are drifting into the self-righteousness and we're eroding at the freedom of the gospel by adding rules or adding expectations that are not from Christ. See, to be in Christ is really to experience freedom. A relationship. A relationship of love. That Jesus is not saying, go 99%. Or sorry, I'll do 99%, but you do 1%. If you really want to show me that you're my disciple. No, no, no. Jesus is not a friend of sinners who then demands that those sinners prove themselves. No, he loves you. You come to Jesus in repentance and faith, you will receive arms open, wide, welcoming you. He will not require you to clean yourself up first. He himself will clean you up. He will transform your heart from the inside out. Come to Jesus, and he receives you with open arms of love. This is beautiful. This is true freedom. See, if, if you want to destroy the freedom you have in the gospel, believe that Christ's love has some sort of crank, that if you work hard enough cranking that thing, eventually Jesus will release some of the love that he has for you. Instead, believe this. Believe that God's love in Christ for you is this flowing fountain that cannot be stopped. It cannot be dammed up. It is a fountain that's ever flowing of love. All you must do is embrace Christ, and that love is forever and always and unceasingly flowing for you. 
and that we can say with Paul in Romans 8 that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. And so we're free. And we can be free from the shackles and the tyranny of the law. We can be free from the, 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 the expectations that people can put on us to try to impress them with our actions. Jesus is full Savior. Jesus saves us 100%. Jesus doesn't save us partially and then tell us to do the rest of the work. We're free. You come to Christ. And the freedom creates this love, this joy. It's like a wedding celebration. That's what he's saying. But if you try to mix external forms with internal affections, you'll miss both. You will not be able to enjoy a relationship with God so long as you're trying to impress him. You will not be able to enjoy a relationship with Jesus Christ if you think you need to coax his love out from him. You'll give in to forms, duties, externals. And when this takes place in a whole church, it is absolutely terrifying. It looks like this. We become pretty infatuated with externals. Because we're so infatuated with externals, we don't talk about our lives, really. We don't open up, we clamp down. Everyone is politely non-intrusive because we're all just fine. We're all fine because we love the externals. And then that leads to a church where there is no messiness. In fact, unhealthy churches are like a room where all the junk has been jammed into a closet. It looks fine, but there's a mess hidden somewhere. But because that happens, what happens next in the church is it begins to adopt these superficial relationships. No one really knows each other because no one really opens up. It's all surface. We're all nice to each other. We're all genial with each other. We don't really know each other. Well, what happens after that is that we're not really committed to each other. We're not committed to each other beyond the scheduled events. We're not really committed to each other beyond the programs. There's no heart of love trying to actually know and connect with one another. If everything's formal and there's nothing in the heart, then, then there's nothing going to be done beyond the external forms anyway. Because that takes place, we all drift apart, but we still retain this impression we want to give people. We have this mask that we wear, even while our own private lives are going in an entirely different direction. We try to keep up appearances. By that point, we've given into full-blown hypocrisy. Friends, many people walk away from the church because of that. And if you've walked away from Christianity, I wonder if you've walked away not from actually the substance of Christ, but maybe you've walked away from a form that was hollow. Once that shell was exposed to be empty, you thought that this has nothing to offer and you left. That would be understandable. Let me show you that Jesus is saying that true relationship is vibrant, living relationship of love for him. And it can't be compatible with the external forms of human righteousness. It is a relationship that flows from the heart. We really love God. 
Let's go back where we started. What is your relationship with God like? Can you honestly say that you love him? That you could strip away all the forms You could strip away all the gatherings like this pandemic has. You could strip away all the externals and you would still love God and you would still love his people. That would be proof that it's not a form. But when this pandemic has stripped away so many of our externals, do you find yourself wondering what it even means to be a Christian? You love him, really, who he is, for what he's done for you? This is true Christianity. It is a relationship of love with the living God who desires to have a relationship that's like a perfect marriage. Don't let it become the enslaving shackles of works righteousness where you're always trying to impress God and people by your behavior. It is Misery. Go to Christ instead and find joy. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would throw away the the old forms of self-righteousness and external appearance. And instead, we would recognize that you love us in Christ. And that we're free in Christ. That we don't need to adopt external forms of righteousness to impress you or people. We can be free. And that for freedom, Christ has set us free. Lord, make us feel free if we're in Christ. Relieve us from the bonds of our efforts that are always failing. Free us from that false idea that your love for us is based on whether we work hard enough or do enough. Help us really get the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.